Have you ever had a pity party? You know, pity, party of one, pity, party of one, or every party has a pity, that's why we invited you. It's not exactly how it goes, but you know, you kind of get the idea. I came across an interesting article with this title, How to Have a Super Fun Pity Party in 10 Easy Steps. 10 Easy Steps for Having a Pity Party. Here are a few of the things that were mentioned. Crawl under your comforter. Forget personal hygiene. That's not important. Don't worry about personal hygiene. Reiterate that your life is harder than anyone else's all the time. Be sure you tell everybody that. Eat ice cream and cry. Eat more ice cream. Cry some more. These are, these are good things. And then, of course, to, to sleep. This is a, a great way to have a pity party. A good way for us to pursue that. Kaylin Hughes says this, When you cry and hide and sulk and eat and repeat, you are eventually going to get exhausted. That's true. A pity party will exhaust you. It will. It exhausts all of us. And you know what? It also, more than likely, will exhaust the people who are around you. Pity parties are not positive. In fact, we need to work really hard to avoid pity parties. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to have bad days. It doesn't mean that, that everything is going to go perfect. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have days where we get our feelings hurt, where we're really aggravated with the circumstances around us. Those things are, are going to happen. Nor does it mean that we have to walk around with a, a smile plastered on our face all the time. And that we look at everybody in the eyes or, or we stare into the camera at the ATM machine and say, God bless you. You don't have to do that all the time. That's, that's not the idea behind avoiding pity parties. That's not what it means. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean to avoid a pity party? Well, the Apostle Paul has a cure for pity parties. And it doesn't take ten steps. He's whittled it down to one step, just, just one step for avoiding these exhausting pity parties. And what is that step? Well, let's find out. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Praying. I know, I know. Man, that's, that's hokey, preacher. Come on, praying. That sounds so religious. That sounds oversimplified. Praying is just something that that you just do, but, but really? Is it really going to help? Yeah. Prayer is the cure for pity parties. It pops the balloons, it unplugs the DJ, it cuts the light off on the pity party. Now somebody might say, but, but how can, can prayer really help my problem? I mean, how can, how can prayer help my stress? How can prayer help my sickness? How can prayer help me pay my bills? How can prayer help my fear and my worry and my marriage problems? Well, I want to try and let Paul answer some of those questions for us this morning. I think he'll do a good job. Look back at verse 3. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the Word. Paul was once a very cool, hip popular, up-and-coming leader. He was the kind of guy that everybody would want to, to run for office. And then he met Jesus. 
and he lost all of his cool points. They just started fading away. He wasn't as popular as he once was. Why? Well, because he quit trying to impress people. He quit trying to get ahead. He quit trying to, to get his name on the nightly news or, or in the newspaper or on the cover of a magazine. He quit trying to, to make it on the, the bulletin board at work for promotions. He quit trying to get his name in the bulletin at church. In short, what he did was he quit trying to make a name for himself and he became consumed with making a name for Jesus. And how'd that work out for him? How did it work out for Paul when, when he started making a name for Jesus? When he became, so to speak, the, the first prime minister of Christianity? What kind of perks did he get for that position? Well, Paul tells us in his own words, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Well, there's a commercial for Christianity, right? <laughs> Whippings and beatings and, and shipwrecks. But that's not all. Johnny, tell them what else they could win. Well, they could be hungry. They could be homeless. They could be constantly surrounded by danger. Come on down. We'll, we'll sign you up. It's true that there's some good and some bad when it comes to following Christ, at least bad by our definition. But see, here's the thing. The peace that comes through Jesus, it's real. The love that comes through Jesus, it is very, very real. The hope that comes through Jesus is real. And the joy of heaven, the joy of eternal life, the joy of one day being with God forever where we are completely satisfied is real. Completely and totally real. But the eternal salvation that comes through Jesus Christ never comes with a promise that everything is going to be fluffy and comfortable. Never happens. It's not an easy street that the gospel promises us. It is eternal life. It is eternal satisfaction and eternal joy. If there was anybody in the world who deserved to have a pity party, it was Paul. I mean, he just wrote down some of the stuff that happened to him after he got saved, after he met Jesus. And all of those things caused him to throw in the towel, right? Paul eventually just was throwing pity parties every night about everything in his life, right? Now, a little earlier in that same letter to the church, he writes this. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death. So Paul has this moment in life where he is so burdened, he's so in despair, he's so overwhelmed, he thought they were going to die. Not casually, but really. 
He thought they were literally going to be executed for preaching and following Jesus. And what did that stir him to do? Throw a pity party? No. This is what Paul goes on to write. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. I love this picture. Paul is overwhelmed. He is exhausted. He has completely given out of everything that he has. He cannot handle what's going on in his life. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever felt that way? Paul could not handle it. But don't miss that. It was something that Paul could not handle. Listen, God might allow you to go through something that you cannot handle. But it is utterly and completely impossible for there to be anything that happens in the life of a Christian that God cannot handle. There is this awesome sovereignty, this awesome power, this awesome love that can't be diminished, it can't fade, it can't be removed. And Paul discovered in the moment of his life, the most intense moment of despair, the most intense moment of discouragement or depression or stress or worry or fear, in that moment when he thought he was going to die, he learned how to rely on God. He learned how to lean on God. He learned how to depend on God. Instead of throwing a pity party, Paul threw himself on the mercies of God. And he found those mercies real. He found those mercies to work. He found those mercies very satisfying for his soul. He could depend on the mercy and the grace of God. So Paul is writing to a church and, and he wants them to pray for him. And what does he want them to pray? Look again at verse 3. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door. Now Paul is in jail as he's writing this. He's, he's a prisoner. Notice what he doesn't pray. He doesn't pray, hey, Get me out of jail. I need, I need to get out of jail free card. I need to get out of here. He doesn't pray that, does he? See, Paul didn't see prison as a bad thing. He didn't see prison as a waste of time. Paul is not saying, I want you guys to pray that I'll be released from prison so I can get back down to Holland Avenue Baptist Church and preach the gospel. He didn't ask for that prayer. He doesn't say, pray that I'll get released from prison so I can go out there and reach people who aren't being reached. Doesn't pray that prayer. He says, pray that where I am right now in this moment that God would use me. See, Paul was seeing prison as an opportunity. He was seeing prison as a door. A door for Jesus, an opportunity for the gospel. Let me ask you a question. What's your prison in life right now? What's that situation that, that you just can't shake? What's that person or who's that person that's, that's just driving you up the wall that, that you just can't get away from? What is that stress? What is that fear? What is that worry that has just captured your mind right now? 
Did you ever think that, that that prison, whatever it may be for you, is actually an opportunity? Did you ever think that, that the prison right now is an opportunity for, for God to help you rely on Him, but also to help others see Him? And sometimes I think as Christians and, and even as the church, we, we get obsessed about what we don't have the things that, that we think we need or, or the things that we wish were going on or the things that, that we wish we were doing. And we get discouraged. And that can be a good thing. It can be a good thing to, to look and, and try to find ways to serve others. I had a very wise man tell me recently that you can't stand still. Those are statues, by the way, in that picture. Yeah, those are statues. They're statues. They're, they're men. They're, they're just standing still. They're not doing anything. That picture's from somewhere in the Netherlands. If you go to the Netherlands, those guys are still standing there. They're not doing anything. We can't stand still. We, we have to be looking, actively looking for ways to serve and to minister to God, to make a big deal out of Jesus. But at the same time, notice Paul's prayer. Paul does not pray what we pray sometimes. Paul prays for a door. He doesn't pray for every door. He prays for a opportunity. He doesn't pray for, for every opportunity. I think sometimes we, we get discouraged because instead of praying that God would help us to make the most of the opportunities that we exist in right now, we start praying, God, make every opportunity work out. Make everything happen. Instead of saying, God, this is where I am. This is what's going on. These are the people that are around me this hour, this day. Would you help me to make the most of this opportunity? Paul prays in such a way that reminds us that we don't need to be lazy as Christians, but we don't need to be crazy either. We don't need to, to just say, oh, somebody else will witness. Well, somebody else will tell people about Jesus. We don't need to be lazy, but we also don't need to be crazy. We can't fire arrows everywhere. Paul always said, this is where I am. This is what God's doing. God, use me much here, now, in this hour, in this moment. The challenge for us as believers is not to be lazy, not to be crazy, not to throw a pity party, but to pray and say, God, would you help me today, here, now, in this hour, in this moment, to make much of Jesus, whether it's to your spouse or your kids, schoolmates, coworkers, whoever it may be. How can I make much of Jesus here? How can I make the most of this opportunity? And what was the opportunity that... Paul really wanted. Look again at verse 3. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the Word. So, so Paul's praying that he would be able to preach and teach and talk. About what? Look at the next part. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Paul was praying for an open door for the Word about Jesus. The, the mystery about Jesus, this grand and, and glorious mystery about Jesus Christ. Now, we hear the word mystery, you know, and, and we think, you know, a, a secret, a, a hidden thing, you know. Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, Scooby-Doo, something along those lines. You know, we, we start thinking, oh, a secret, a mystery, something. But that's not how the Bible talks about a mystery. A mystery in the Bible is when there's some truth that's been hidden and concealed because it's not time yet 
for it to be revealed. And so Paul says, I want you to pray for me because it's time for the mystery to be revealed. This secret is not supposed to be kept anymore. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That needs to be the motto of our lives. That today we have the mystery, the the secret that is no longer hidden. And Paul's praying, y'all pray for me so that I can let this mystery be known. What is the mystery? Well, in his letter to the Colossian church, he put it this way. God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. Don't miss this. Which is Christ in you. Christ in you. The Son of God in you. In the heart of a believer. What does that mean? Does that mean there's a a little mini-me Jesus who has a futon and He physically goes in our heart? No. It means that beyond our comprehension, beyond a way that we can understand, that the Son of God, the living Savior, really does in every one of our hearts that follow after Him, He takes up residence there. It is a great mystery. There is no way I can explain it. There's no way we could ever understand it. That's what makes it so wonderful. That's what makes it so amazing. But Paul gives it a shot. He's going to try to explain it a little bit. This time in his letter to the church at Galatia. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What does that mean, Christ lives in me? David Guzik puts it this way. Paul realized on the cross a great exchange had occurred. He gave Jesus his old try to be right before God by the law life, and it was crucified on the cross. Then Jesus gave Paul his life. Christ came to live in him. So Paul's life isn't his own anymore. It belongs to Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't own his life. That life died. He is simply managing the new life that Jesus gave him. In other words, our thoughts, our desires, our dreams, our needs, our wants, everything about us, they change when Jesus comes into our heart. Now, I'm not talking about a millisecond and, you know, all of a sudden you just become a perfect Christian. We're we're never talking about perfection. But we're talking about if you are a huge jerk to your spouse, male or female, when Jesus comes into your heart, that desire begins to fade. Because your heart has now been captured by the living God. The Son of God is now living inside of us. So, So what we do and how we talk, those things begin to change because... There's a new owner of our hearts. There's there's new management in our hearts. Christ exchanges our dead rebellion for His perfect righteousness. Why? Why in the world would the powerful, awesome Son of God take His perfection and exchange it, switch accounts with our rebellion? Paul goes on to tell us in the next part. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Why would Jesus absorb the penalty 
of my sin and your sin? Why would Jesus absorb the penalty with His own body when we were rebels with no desire for His gift? Why would Jesus do that? Paul says, because of love. Love. Love is the reason that Jesus died on the cross. He, he died to glorify His Father, but, but it was for love of our souls, love for rescuing us. In its purest form, this mystery that Paul writes about is the love of Christ. It's love we didn't deserve. It's love we didn't desire. It's love that we could not demand. But through the love of Christ, we find it. Because Jesus comes and He loves us and He rescues us and He frees us. Here's the bad news. The bad news is, without Christ, you die. And you keep dying forever and ever and ever. The terror and the horror of life and death and the worst things, they never leave. They never go away. That's the bad news. The great news is that with Christ, you have Christ inside of you. You still die, but you don't die. You live forever. The terror actually goes away. The horror actually goes away. It is just a breath of death and then eternity with Christ forever. That's the great news. That's the mystery that we, we can't really explain, but, but we have it. We get it. And God allows us, allows our hearts to see that that, that secret is, is no longer secret. It's, it's out. It's out. Paul wanted the church to pray for him that he could get the secret out, that more people could have their lives changed and their hearts transformed. And again, where was he praying for this opportunity? Look again at the last part of verse 3. For which I have also been imprisoned. Paul cracks me up. I mean, just think about this. Paul is in prison. And while he's in prison, he's saying, hey, I want you guys to, to pray for me. I'm in prison because I was talking about Jesus. So would you pray for me while I'm in prison that I can talk more about Jesus? I mean, doesn't this just not make sense? There's a story told about a, a pastor in Bulgaria who was arrested in 1985 inside his own church for preaching the gospel. These are the words of Risto Kulichev about being in prison. Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions, and it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God was better served by our presence in the prison than if we had been free. Bless their hearts. They are crazy, right? What kind of man says it was better for me to be in prison. There's a song from years back by Stephen Curtis Chapman that had these words. What kind of joy is this that counts it a blessing to suffer? What kind of joy is this that gives the prisoner his song? What kind of joy could stare death in the face and see it as sweet victory? This, this is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. In the, in the deepest part of Paul's heart, he really believed this. 
He wasn't just trying to be a good Baptist. He really believed. He was forgiven and he was free. And he had a hunger that the guards and the other prisoners and the people that brought the bread and the water and and anybody else around, he had a hunger that they would experience what it meant to be forgiven and free. Friend, let me ask you a question. How are we doing with that hunger? How hungry are we for our children and grandchildren to come to Christ more than their education? How hungry are we for people to come to Christ more than getting good jobs or nice houses or nice cars? How hungry are we for people to be forgiven and free whether they ever come to our church or not? Paul had a hunger for people to be forgiven and free because he felt it deep down. He knew that Jesus was real. Look at the last part of his prayer. Verse 4. And pray that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. This is just kind of funny to me. This guy, arguably, is one of the greatest missionary preachers who ever lived on the earth. He did more for the cause of Christianity outside of Jesus Christ than than anybody in history. And he says, you know what? I need you to pray that I make this clear. (laughs) I'm pretty sure Paul was clear. I'm pretty sure he understood the gospel. I'm pretty sure he understood what it meant to talk about Jesus. But you know what Paul didn't miss? And that was you can be the greatest preacher in the world, but without the Spirit of God, it's just words. It's just words. You see, the the gospel needs to be clear. That doesn't mean simple. It means clear. The gospel is not just a formula of words. The Bible says it's the power of God. That's how Paul wrote it to the Roman church. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is is not just something cute that we can quote or or rattle off in a formula. It is the power of God. This is how people get saved, through the gospel. They don't get saved necessarily through all the things we do. They get saved through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. So if the gospel is the power of God, we need to get that clear, right? I mean, that needs to be clear. That doesn't need to be confusing. We don't need to dress up the gospel in anything but Jesus. It just needs to be clear. We need to speak clearly about this great news about Jesus. Bruce Getz writes this, Anyone can talk. Few people communicate. Our goal is not only to talk to others about Jesus, we want to convey to them the power and the love, the forgiveness and the beauty of the Savior. The the beauty. Listen, we have beauty in a world that is full of darkness, in a world that's full of discouragement, in a world that's full of stress and worry and fear. Listen, in a world that's full of thousands of reasons for me and you to have a pity party. In that world, we, we have beauty. We have beauty to share. We have beauty to reveal. We have the beauty of this exchange between Jesus and us. We have the beauty of the cross. We have the beauty of forgiveness. We have the beauty of freedom. And we have the 
beauty of love. We have the one true, beautiful Savior. Friends, we have the greatest gift in the universe. The gift that forgives, the gift that sets people free. My prayer for our hearts is that above all else in our lives, above all the things that we may love, all the things that we may do, if there's anything that God helps us to do, it is to make clear this beautiful King that we have, that we would make Jesus clear to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the Gospel. Thank You that that we didn't have to make up our own story to try to get people to be Christians. Thank You that we didn't have to make up our our own ways to try to get people to, to even come to our church. But You gave us Your Son. You gave us Your Son. And then He gave Himself to us out of love. And so help us. Help us to enjoy this mystery. Help us to not keep this mystery to ourselves. Give us a hunger to love Jesus and to make much of Him. And we ask these things in His name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is hymn number 527. The greatest thing in all the world is loving and knowing Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've listened to some of these things that we've sung, some of the things that have been prayed and some of the things that have been preached, and maybe you do not feel deep in your soul that you've been forgiven and free. I plead with you to come to Christ today. I'll be down at the front for a few moments if you need to talk to someone about what it means to be rescued by God, what it it means to turn from your rebellion and really really be free, really be satisfied, not just today, but satisfied forever. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We encourage you to come and and be a part of our family, to serve. Not, this is not Highland Avenue Country Club. We ask that you would come and, and be a part of our church, be a part of what we're doing to make much of God. I'll be down at the front for a few moments this morning. If you need to talk to someone about salvation, if you need to talk to someone about being a part of our church, or maybe you just need to pray this morning, I encourage you, you can come and pray. But, but I ask that even if it's not in these moments, maybe it'll be at 3 o'clock today, but I pray that you would understand what it means to be forgiven and free and that God would capture your heart if He is not already. Tim's going to come and lead us as we stand and sing.